We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26, please. Matthew chapter 26. We are getting toward the end of the chapter. Uh, Not quite, but toward the end here. And uh, we are in verses 57 to 68. 57 to 68. I've titled the message tonight very simply, Sham Trial Number One. Sham Trial Number One. At least as uh, Matthew gives it in his order. And um, so you'll recall you know, all that has come before, I hope, with uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord's Table, uh, the Last Supper, uh, the parables and things in the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25. Um, the Lord is arrested in Galilee, uh, sorry, in Galilee, he's promised, I was looking at the word Galilee, he's arrested in Gethsemane, that's the right word I'm looking for, and um, that was a bad, bad night, um, but, but you know, the Lord said the scriptures have to be fulfilled, they have to be fulfilled, so we have to go through with this, and that's in verse 56, all the disciples forsook him, and fled, um, except for Peter. We're not going to focus on Peter in this section, but Peter uh, did. He comes, comes to the forefront again in verse 69. We won't be able to get that far this evening by, by any stretch. But uh, the text does mention in verse 58 these words. It says, "But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard." So everybody fled except Peter sort of fled, but he kind of followed at a safe distance, if you will, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. So he followed the the Lord Jesus as he was taken into custody, right, to Caiaphas, the high priest in the courtyard there, and he tried for some time, Peter did, to remain there and see what would happen. Was it an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours? We don't know. Remember, we learn elsewhere that he sat by the fire to warm himself. It was late in the evening, or actually probably very early in the morning. The, the unfortunate part of this was that Peter's zeal and desire to be close to the Lord brought him to the hottest fire of temptation that he could face. And we'll see in verse 69 how that turned out, but we're not going to get there now. Um, I... I said in the message uh, heading here, besides the sham trial, number one, the truth was that Jesus received the death penalty from a kangaroo court. And I, I, I wanted to make sure I was using kangaroo court correctly. It's actually, technically, some will call that a kangaroo court an unofficial body who tries someone that they feel is already guilty. It's a kangaroo court. I use the term more broadly to refer to any court, whether an official body or not. It can be an official body, but they can still have the bad motivation of, of trying somebody who they already know is guilty. So really, it doesn't matter to me that it's an unofficial body. The key feature of the kangaroo court and where it gets its name 
is that as a kangaroo jumps, they, the people in this court leap over evidence that may be satis- uh, helpful to the defense of the defendant um, or favorable to the accused person. They ignore such evidence and focus only on the evidence that they determine would be favorable to their pre- or foregone conclusion. You understand what I mean? Officers of true justice, now, in contrast to a kangaroo court, officers of true justice will not only take into consideration evidence that favors the accused, but they will welcome such evidence. This is the difference between the kind of courts that we see too often today and the kind of court that would please the Lord. In the kind of court that would please the Lord, if a prosecutor sees some evidence that makes it quite clear that the defendant is innocent, he will not be like that, you know, oh, shucks, I wish that he, I I would be able to get him. No, he would be happy because he would say, I've gotten more truth now, and I'm able to uh, not condemn the innocent, but rather to clear the innocent because I only want to condemn the guilty. Such people have a desire to pursue truth, not just a higher number of convictions to pad their resume and make them more electable. Unfortunately, that pursuit of true justice is too often not the case in our own justice system. Can you imagine how bad it is in systems that are, almost all systems are worse than ours? Would you agree? Think of what's happening in China right now. You think those people are going to get any kind of fair trial? You think they're going to get any fair consideration for the suffering that's been put upon them by the government? You think they'll get any consideration when their houses, doors are nailed shut in their apartments and they're unable to get out and they burn to death alive in their homes when there's a fire in the kitchen? That's injustice, my friends. Well, in any case... The Lord is facing a kangaroo court, and, and one of the reasons that you and I can face things like that is because he did already ahead of us, and it's our portion sometimes to suffer like he did, not exactly like he did, but something like that. So he suffered, we suffer. If the world hates me, it will hate you. If they persecute me, they will persecute you, he said. And so we can go through those kind of things knowing that God has some good in it if that's the case. I, I wish that weren't the case, my friends. I wish God would come and right all wrongs right now, but he doesn't choose to do that. Look at verse 57 with me in Matthew 26, verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now, let me just mention to you, it's out of order with my notes, but... Um, it will make sense to you, I think, in this order as well. It says, they led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. Now, that doesn't sound too sinister uh, until you realize what verse 1 of chapter 27 says. When morning came, they all plotted to put Jesus to death, which means that what happened in chapter 26 happened at night. 
which we knew already because they were after the Lord's the Last Supper. They went to, the, to Gethsemane. It was late. They were tired. They had prayed for some hours into the evening, and it was nighttime. What the Jews were doing here was illegal because even in their own book, in their books, in their law, they were not supposed to have trials during the night. The, uh, you know, the phrase, doing something under the cover of darkness, that's what they were literally doing. Not only were trials to be held in the light of day, but capital trials, that is, in which someone's life was at stake, were to be held publicly at the temple. Neither of those rules were followed. The entire proceedings should have been thrown out by Pilate. You remember what Pilate said? This was in John 18, I believe. He said to the Jews, you go and judge him according to your own law. Well, they didn't even do that because they had the nighttime trial. They didn't have it in public. They didn't have proper witnesses. Just It's loaded up with technicalities that in any modern courtroom in the United States, the, it would be the, uh, how do you call it? The decision would be vacated, the conviction would be vacated, and it would be thrown out. They might have to have a retrial or whatever. A mistrial would be declared, perhaps, is a better way of saying it. But in any case, you take him and judge him according to your law. They did not do that. This is at night. Now, with that background, and those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Pray tell, why were they assembled in the middle of the night? The only way that we can explain that is that they had prearranged with Judas, this was the night, we're going to get him this evening after the supper, and we're going to haul him in here and we're going to kill him the next day. They had it all planned out on their calendars. That's why they, they would have been at home, friends, with family. They would have been in bed but they weren't wickedness. The Bible mentions in John 18, 13 that uh, it's not mentioned here in Matthew, but they first took uh, Jesus to Annas. Annas was the former high priest from 6 A.D. to 15 A.D. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas and the son of a man named Seth. Uh, but he still held great sway, was still alive, even here in the early 30s A.D., because they took Jesus first to Annas. They fiddled around there, I'll call it. We won't have to get into that because that's in John's Gospel. And then Joseph Caiaphas was the man who became in charge. He was the actual high priest from 18 to 36 A.D., Long reign as high priest. He's named in Scripture in nine verses. Eight of those, as far as I can tell, all have him as a vehement opposer of the Lord and of the disciples. I've got the list of verses in my notes. You can get these on the computer if you want to see them. The exception is one historical note in Luke chapter 3, In verse number 2, which I'll just read quickly just because it's a little different than the others, it says, While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And so the Jews evidently saw Annas 
and Caiaphas effectively as dual high priests at this time because they really knew Caiaphas, or Annas is kind of the patriarch and Caiaphas is, you know, the guy that's doing the day-to-day operations, if you will. So they had both of them there. Now, Caiaphas may have been able to try to defend himself a little bit by saying, well, I have an overriding concern to avoid confrontation with Rome. I don't want to get into trouble with Rome. And uh, we see that in, in John eleven forty eight. It says, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Okay, so he said that a little, a little more, had a little more meaning than what he even knew, uh, John recognizes. But even if he had that concern politically, he had it out for Jesus. You know what I mean? He hated him. Why? Because he was of, the, he was of his father, the devil. Don't pretend that these, this guy, you know, high priest though he was, was some kind of fine believer who was just a little misguided. If he was a believer, he would have known Jesus. Intuitively, he would have had that spirit in him that resonated with the spirit of Jesus, if you will, and he would have known this man is from God, like Nicodemus knew. Or even when Jesus died and the centurion said, this man was truly the son of God, he would know that. So you have Annas, you have Caiaphas in this courtroom, you have the Sanhedrin. I should say Annas was in the previous courtroom, now Caiaphas in this one that we're looking at. Then you have the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is from a Greek word that literally means council. So that if you say Sanhedrin council, that's kind of an oxymoron. That's saying things twice but we understand what we mean when we say that. The scribes and the elders were already assembled when Jesus was brought into the palace of Caiaphas. That just shows, as I indicated, the extent of pre-planning to kill Jesus. And the council was a body of either 70 or 71, if you count the high priest, perhaps, men who met to hold court in the temple. They met every day. They met to uh, administer certain punishments and uh, judgments, adjudication of things, but they were unable to, under Rome, uh, authorize the death penalty. In this case, they pushed that off to Pilate. Now, you might ask, if you're sharp, you might say, well, what happened with Stephen? Well, they sometimes took liberties, and they went ahead and just stoned Stephen anyway without going to the Roman authorities to kill him. Remember in Acts chapter 7, he gave that long speech, and they gnashed their teeth. They were upset at him for saying that they were stiff-necked just like their forefathers were, and so they took him out and they stoned him killed him to death, and, uh, and that was it, just done. They did that illegally, but they probably, I think, got away with it because the Romans would probably turn a blind eye sometimes to that just so they would avoid uh, unnecessary confrontation. So what about the proceedings of this kangaroo court in verse 59? And we already touched 58 because it was about Peter following 59 then, now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now that's, that's really stupid, if I may so say. They sought false testimony. Okay, imagine, high priest. Are there anybody out, is there anybody out there with false testimony? We'd like to hear it. I'm sure they didn't say it that way. But let's be honest. They knew that there was nothing they were going to get Jesus on. They had been trying for three years 
more or less. That's what it was. Jesus had done nothing wrong, so any testimony against him had to be what? Had to be false. It had to be false. So John just calls it like it is. They sought false testimony. And it became obvious when listening. And and the Bible tells us elsewhere, not only Peter, but John was nearby. So maybe they were overhearing this, and this is how we have this information. But they sought false testimony. And here it's even worse. In order to put him to death. Nice guys, huh? They had plotted to put him to death. Now the plotters were the judges. Can you imagine the scandal if a high-ranking judicial appointee had it out for somebody, planted evidence, put out an arrest warrant, had the guy brought into his courtroom, set up false witnesses, and all this was found out later? And had the guy convicted, hmm. set himself up as judge, jury, and executioner, all in one. There was no accountability for these people, no one overwatching, as uh, the phrase that you might have heard, who's watching the watchers? Who's watching the watchers? I think that's a major problem in our judicial system today. I've said that before, there, there needs to be some... Uh, independent, I don't know what it would be, but citizen judiciary that are overlooking cases and looking at things top to bottom and making sure that there's no... And and they have full run of the place. Anything the prosecutor has or has touched, that body can have and look at. I can't can't abide that kind of lack of accountability that some of these prosecutors have where they can hide evidence... They don't have to share Brady evidence, as it's called. You read about Brady evidence, that sort of thing. It's just intolerable to me. But this is is what human life is like. I think we get the idea because sometimes we live in such an isolated environment. Like we come to church and people are pretty nice. I mean, they're not perfect, but pretty nice people and you know, we kind of cloister in our homes and we stay a little bit away from some of the more crazy stuff in the world. And we kind of lose sight of the fact of how bad people really are. Like, we're not on the streets and we, so we don't see the low-level, I'll call it low-level crime. You know, the, the assaults and the theft and these sorts of things, the, the, the property damage and all that. We don't see the high-level crime because we're not in, you know, the corporate offices where these bad things have happened. We don't see the governmental you know, malfeasance that goes on because we're not there. And so we get this kind of idea that, well, people are kind of decent. People are rotten. People are wicked sinners. And we just, because we've become so, in some of our homes and places, so Christianized, we've lost the view of how corrupt the heart is. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The most religious people in Matthew 26 have the worst corruption that you can imagine. And so I want you to not lose sight of the fact that people are, as Paul says, invariably. We've charged all to be under sin, and they are. 
and I think you need to look outside of your own little bubble and look at nations of the world in the Middle East and China and Russia and elsewhere, all the injustice that happens there, and then think about in our own land with abortion and people talking about all kinds of different quote-unquote marriage and infanticide and euthanasia and all of these things that are deeply evil and hopefully realize why God is just in how he speaks and how he deals with humanity. These guys were unable to find two or three witnesses who agreed. They wanted to give an appearance in following their own law because in Deuteronomy 17, 16, it says, you shall not put anyone to death on the testimony of a single witness. Nobody to death on the testimony of a single witness. And that is an eyewitness. That is a human eyeball witness. Okay? That's, that's not circumstantial evidence. That's not whatever. That's witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 says the same thing. But finally, they did find two false testifiers. What does the text say? It says, they found none. Even though many came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, where did the Lord say that? Anybody know? Well, I'd be so bold as to say the Lord didn't say that. He said something like it, but he didn't say that. John chapter 2, verse 19 um, They wanted a sign again, and Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, what did they say? This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Wait a minute. I'm able to destroy it and raise it up, or you destroy it and I will raise it up. No able in there, no I'm going to destroy it, you destroy it. They didn't quote him correctly. Okay? Oh, by the way, just exactly how is it a capital offense, even if Jesus did say, I'm able to destroy this temple and raise it up? The worst you could claim that he is is crazy. Like, of course he can't destroy the whole building and raise it up in three days. If you're thinking, well, of course he's the son of God, he could do that. But... If you're thinking he's just a man, you think, well, this guy's a nut. Forget about him. Just don't bother with him. You know, there's no point in, in, in doing this to a guy. He's just a fool. So how it's a capital offense, I have no idea. But they misunderstood the statement from the moment Jesus made it. He never said that he was able. He never said, I will destroy it and, and, and then rebuild it. He wasn't talking about the temple of Herod. He was talking about what? The temple of his body. John's gospel is very clear about that. And the disciples understood that later on. Uh, you know, they were incredulous. What do you mean? It's taken 46 years to build this temple, the Pharisees or Jews said. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered. Can you imagine? that? Like, oh, that's what he meant. Awesome. His disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So often the Pharisees misunderstood the words of Jesus because he was speaking in somewhat veiled or parabolic language 
were language of spiritual significance and they had no spiritual insight. Couldn't they see that? The Lord never said uh, that this temple is made with hands. They said that. That's what that's not what Jesus said, but they said that, and it reflects a misunderstanding of what they said. So not even the false testifiers could come up with a statement that was accurate, even though two of them agreed to it. So what happens next is the Pharisees, the high priest in particular, arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it this, these men are testifying against you? Now, it was probably somewhat odd for a defendant in a capital case to not say anything. Would you say something? You'd probably say something in your own defense, wouldn't you? Like, uh, no, I don't deserve this penalty because A, B, C, D, E, you know, give the whole list of reasons. But the high priest was frustrated. Jesus was not saying anything. But Jesus didn't say anything, not only because... You know, the accused doesn't have to say anything. And we recognize that in our own law, don't we? Does the accused have to say anything? No. Um, but because Jesus was righteous and it was in God's plan for him to gently follow the path assigned to him to die for sinners that, and, and to do the will of the Father, if Jesus kept silent, We know he must have been right. We know that must have been the right approach because Jesus didn't sin. He knew no sin. There was no unrighteousness found in his mouth. In uh, Acts 8.32, it says, He was led as a lamb, sorry, as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. This is... That was in the passage where the eunuch happened to be reading in Isaiah 53, when that was a quotation of Isaiah 53. As a lamb is silent, as a sheep before its shearers is mute, so Jesus opened not his mouth. And I think in part he did that because if he had opened his mouth and outspilled the truth that would have rebuked the Pharisees, that would have, could I say, reduced the chances of him being crucified and going through with the plan of God. I mean, he could have said something that would have set them back in their chair, but he didn't because that was not the will of the Father for him to defend himself against these false charges. The high priest then pulls rank on him and says, I adjure you by the living God. You must speak. Little did he know that he was speaking to the face of the living God. Mm. Of course, we understand him to mean the Father, Jesus subjecting himself to the Father. And so, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Very unkind of him. Why did he say, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God? What does that have to do with you can tear the temple down and build it in three days? It's like, the, it's like a non sequitur. It's, it doesn't follow. It's like the line of questioning is going this direction in this courtroom proceeding, and then all of a sudden the, the questioner goes off in this direction. It was nothing to do with what was going on in the courtroom, it seemed. 
But of course, this was the real issue behind the whole situation. They objected to him claiming to be the Messiah and to be the Son of God. And so Jesus implicitly here doesn't say that he took the oath, but he acceded to the demand of the priest and in a sense giving respect to the office, if not the man himself. And this is the answer that Jesus gave. Yes, basically, yeah, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. He said, it is as you said. So in English, you know, kind of plain English, we would say, yes, that's true. That was his way of saying, yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. It is as you said. Now, the Son of God may not have meant the same thing to the priest as it did to Jesus. What did it mean to Jesus? It means what it means to us, that he is part and parcel of the deity. Everything God is, he is. He's got all the attributes of deity. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is God in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Maybe the high priest thought that Son of God meant something else, like they would really think Son of God equals Messiah. That was their kind of Jewish theology, not realizing that it wasn't just to equate this person with Messiah, but it was to equate Messiah and him with God. See, they, they, they missed a step. They missed a connection. They missed connecting the dots in this. But he said, I am that one. He's not subordinate to God. He did not come later than God. He had all the attributes of God, however. And then he goes on and he says, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now this just sent the high priest into apoplectic seizures and spasms. He couldn't take it anymore because he knew what Jesus was saying. What was Jesus saying? Well, if you're, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you'll be already thinking back to a passage in the Old Testament that Jesus was using. And if not, let me inform you. He was quoting from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I want to turn there and just read it to you. You give me another moment kindly. We're almost at 8 o'clock. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, the Bible says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. This is the Messiah, friends. The Jewish people knew that this passage was a messianic passage that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying to the high priest, I am the Son of Man. I will come with the clouds of heaven. I will be seated at the right hand of the power, that is, on, on the right hand of God the Father. Here's God the Father. Here's the Son sitting at his right hand having all honor and all glory, alluding to Psalm 110, where God the Father said to the Lord Jesus, the Lord, remember David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is claiming that prerogative of divine kingship. And, and here's where the Jewish people would kind of get maybe turned around a little bit and recognize, think that this is, you know, this is God himself ruling. This is the messianic figure. 
under the power of God, claiming royal prerogative as a descendant of King David. And uh, the blasphemy was more than just claiming to be a, a human descendant. It was to be, uh, you know, basically equal with the divine power. So the high priest understood this to be so close to a claim to deity that he immediately charged Jesus with blasphemy. He asked for the concurrence of the other members of the courtroom. In verse number uh, 65, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? In other words, all 70 of them have heard him themselves. Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. You know, if, if they're charging him with blasphemy, equating himself basically with the Father, and he did that before. I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. My Father's working and I'm working. They took up stones to stone him, John chapter 8. Uh, his enemies acknowledged that his claim was to deity. And yet today there are people who claim to be Christ's friends who deny his deity. It just boggles my brain to think about how somebody can do that. Even the enemies of Christ accused him of blasphemy. What's the conclusion of the court? Well, they decided that he should be worthy of death. They pronounced the death penalty upon him, a judgment to which they had come already before the trial began and which guided their whole approach at trial. Forget the idea of innocent until proven guilty. Uh, No, for them it's guilty until we can prove you're guilty. Um, he's deserving of death. So then they, uh, well, what did the high priest do, by the way? It says in verse 65, he tore his clothes. You know Leviticus 10.6 and Leviticus 21.10 forbid the high priest from tearing his clothes. He was not allowed to tear his robes, but he did that here. Oh, they had their little traditions in the Talmud that allowed them to do that in the case of blasphemy, but that's not what the Bible said. Then they spit on Jesus and they beat him. Others struck him with the palms of their hands and, and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? And what it doesn't say here is that they put a blindfold on him and beat him. And then because he couldn't see who was hitting him, they were mocking him and saying, hey, use your divine powers if you have them, ha ha, to tell us which one of us hit you. The problem is for them, you know, that... In their conscience, whether they learned this shortly after they did this or later on in their lives as they reflected on their deathbed, what they had done, or when they faced God, he's not going to have to be able to identify who hit him. They will know they hit him. And they will be condemned by their own minds and their own actions, their own sins, when God judges them according to their works. If the authorities have to use blindfolds, beatings, and spitting, you know that they're out of line. Nobody should have to ever do that. Correct. Correct. Yes, these are the these are the Sanhedrin members who were doing this, and perhaps others with them. You know they're. They're uh, lewd fellows of the baser sort. Oh. No, these are the guys dressed in suits. 
these weren't, yeah, these weren't the guys that were, uh, you know, all of them just drove out off the street. Yeah, these were the uh, quote-unquote religious people. Nice guys, huh? Yeah. Very unsaved people. Wicked. Clearly, the human reason that Jesus was killed was for claiming to be what he was. He was killed for his identity, son of God and son of man. This, deeper than that, though, was the divine reason. He was going to die as a ransom and rescue for sinners from their bondage to sin and death. Now, he gave his life... He gave his life as a result of a terribly unjust trial, a kangaroo court, no justice. It was the height of evil for Jewish people to corrupt the law of God against the Son of God and kill him. But observe how much good God brought out of this evil. How much good God brought out of this evil. I was just reading this morning a portion of a book that was interesting to me. And uh, there was a question asked of a man, uh, a, a, I think a priest, maybe a Catholic guy, uh, I'm not sure about that, a minister who was ministering in a leper colony. And uh, the man was asked this question, what would be the greatest gift that God could give to these people in the leper colony? And you know what that man said? The greatest gift God could give them is pain. P-A-I-N. Leprosy causes the nerve endings to deaden so that you can't feel when you injure yourself. You can walk on a broken leg, you can't feel the pain. The mice or rats can chew off the end of your fingers because you don't feel them doing that. He said the greatest gift to them would be the gift of pain. It's, and we think there should be no pain. If you had no pain ever, you would be in a world of hurt, using hurt in a metaphorical way. Uh, there are children sometimes who have this uh, this congenital deformity, where not deformity, but malady, where they can't feel pain. They put their hand on a hot stove; they don't feel that it's burning their skin right off of their flesh. And so, somehow, God gave the gift of pain, and He gave a gift here that's very painful to read, and it was. <laughs> a thousand times more painful to experience, yet it caused so much good to come. Counterintuitive, isn't it? Counterintuitive. But that's how God brought a good out of a terrible evil. And uh, who are we to, to, to decide that God was wrong to do that? We're, not, we're, we're very wrong if we think that we can decide better about God, what God should do than what you know, what we think he should do, you know. He's far more wise and experienced and knowledgeable than we are, and even things that seem counterintuitive, like pain, are gifts from God. Here, injustice ended up kind of being a gift from God so that we could have eternal life. Father, thank you for this uh, word here this day. We are grateful for it, even though it's very difficult to read and frustrating in in a way vexes us like we've talked about with Lot and Abram, but yet we recognize that you in your grand wisdom have arranged this manner that your son should give himself as a sacrifice for sinners. Oh, how we thank you, Lord, for that. There is no way that we can plumb the depths of the wisdom of the riches of the knowledge of God. They're past finding out 
And all we can do, Lord, is say that you are worthy of praise and give you doxa, glory, for what you have done. Help us to understand this with a greater level of apprehension than we have before. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I thank you uh, for your kind patience this evening and glad we could spend some time together in the Word. I enjoyed studying this yesterday and today. It was a good, good little study. God bless you folks and uh, keep you safe and close to Him. Amen. Good night.